Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. California's high-speed rail project is an ambitious infrastructure project that's behind schedule, billions of dollars over budget, and struggling to maintain support as the political energy behind it is murky at best. Plenty of work is being done right now, but it doesn't completely match what was originally sold. For more on where this huge infrastructure project is standing, we'll talk to Jill Cowan, California reporter at the New York Times. It's kind of a, a an almost sort of a, a Rorschach test. You can look at the project through a number of different lenses, and it's interesting that, that you took away sort of that the prospects are not looking good. I mean, it's one thing that experts have told me is that it's also very difficult and seldom done that projects like this are killed outright. So it is going to continue to move forward. Whether and at what point we will have the full vision of the project done is still uncertain. And as as the story says, it, it is mostly a matter of political will. And there are pros and cons or positives and negatives for the project at the federal and state level right now. Obviously, President Biden has a much better relationship and is you know, has talked a lot about transforming the nation's infrastructure. So this project is sort of a test of, of how that will play out and to what extent President Biden and Governor Newsom will be able to move forward on those goals. Two things that stood out in your article that ring totally true, right? California residents have long since lost track of what is being built and where. I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, being here, it's <laughs> tough to follow along with what is happening with this project, right? All you just keep hearing is, there's delays and the cost of it is, keeps increasing. And then the other thing is that this is also kind of something else. We look at the country and all the great things that we can do. And right now, it doesn't seem like we're able to complete these transformative projects, you know, that are going to carry us into the future. And that's kind of what this project was hailed as. Right. And and at the same time, uh, there is a lot that's under construction in the Central Valley. And, and I think it's such an interesting, it's just a really interesting lesson. And we're not going to have a clear answer soon because it takes a long time to build these projects. But it is very much under construction. You know, I visited these construction sites. You can see in the in the fantastic photographs from uh, our photographers, Ryan Young and, and Ryan Christopher Jones. There is very much a lot being built. So, it's really interesting in what it says both about California and about the U.S. and these sort of big transformative projects. It's hard to get a handle. And I, and I experienced this while just trying to write about it at this <laughs> point. It's hard to get a handle on what's happening everywhere just because it is so huge. It's such a huge project. And, and there are people who say that people who live in, in the big population centers in California need to see that evidence of this happening. And obviously, Governor Newsom has taken sort of the other tack, which is they need to see trains running in somewhere. They need to be able to see, uh, you know, that this this can work and then, you know, kind of get the momentum going for the rest of it. So the big sell was L.A. to San Francisco. Right now, what's being worked on is a path from Bakersfield to Merced. So you mentioned, uh, you know, you went there, you got to see the crews really working on it. So there's a lot of work being done. And to the point that, uh, you know, Governor Newsom and others have made, you got to get some part of it running so that you can kind of 
you know, find the money to do the other stuff. You got to work on the right. bookends, right? You got to work on the bookends to make sure that's up and running. You got to work in the middle and then you just kind of find the money for the rest of it. And, and that's part of the frustration, right? Is that th- this thing right. just keeps ballooning in that front. The cost does keep rising and the longer it takes, the more money it costs. That is true. And as I, as I had in the, in the article, and as I've said, and, and a lot of people have told me, and if you've been following this project for a while, you know, there have been a lot of well-documented and the High-Speed Rail Authority in California has acknowledged that they have made mistakes in the way that they've gone about it. So certainly nobody is saying that, that California has been perfect in the way that this has happened. But at the same time, that price tag is not unexpected. And it is sort of just an interesting look at how we talk about infrastructure in the United States compared to a lot of other countries where it's sort of accepted that we are going to have to spend a lot of money to update these systems that were built in the middle of last century. You know, for comparison's sake, an expert that I spoke to, Yona Freemark, noted that since 1956, state and local governments have spent more than $10 trillion on surface transportation. So, you know, in that context, he said the $105 billion, as sort of eye-popping as that number is, doesn't sound so crazy, but, you know, it is it is a lot of money to try and find and try to pull together. And the state legislative analyst's office basically said the state needs to commit to this. Otherwise, it's going to be really tough to find enough money to build beyond the Central Valley. Jill Cowan, California reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Right now, we're seeing the surging prices of used cars being turned into profitable investments for those that are willing to part with them. Used car prices have surged 41% since last year, and some are finding that they can make money on what was once a rapidly depreciating asset. For more on all this used car flipping and what you really need to watch out for, taxes, we'll speak to Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. So it's an incredibly interesting dynamic that's going on here uh, because, like you said, the prices of new cars are rising so much and it's hard to get them. There's so many delays with supply chain issues. Therefore, people are turning to the used car markets and pushing up prices there. So what we found is that some people who have cars are realizing, hey, maybe I can go without it. You know, maybe they're working from home more now. Maybe there's good public transportation where they live. And they're deciding, hey, why don't I cash in on the market while I can and make some money off my car? And, you know, for anybody that has bought a car, you know right away, as soon as you buy it and drive it off the lot, it depreciates immediately. It's immediately worth less than what you paid for it. And so that's not the case right now. There's uh, people, like you said, they're doing car flipping. They're identifying, hey, my car's worth a little more. You know, maybe I have a second car. Maybe I can just do without my current car. Let's do it. Let's sell it. So give us a couple of examples because you spoke to a number of people that were going through this process. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting is that these people, they are flipping their cars in the sense that they're selling and making a profit, but they aren't actually doing anything to fix up the cars. They're just realizing, hey, I have this car and I can sell it and make money. And so one person I talked to, you know, was based in Arlington, Virginia, had been using his car to get to work, but then all of a sudden we're all working from home. And so he realized that he didn't really need it that much anymore. He could sell it and put the money into uh, stocks on Robinhood. And then there's another person who, you know, essentially realized that he and his wife could get by with one car instead of two, also working from home more. So it's sort of this lifestyle shift as well with the pandemic. People, you know, not having to commute into the office via car as much. That's also contributing to it. 
Yeah, in that first example you gave, the guy had a 2017 Mazda with 17,000 miles on it. He bought it in July 2020 and then sold it a year and a half later. He bought it at 18,000, sold it for 23,500. So that's a pretty good markup that he got there. And I love the way you put it. Then he he, uh, started uh, diversifying his portfolio stocks on Robinhood, probably bought a little bit of cryptocurrency with it too. So this is not just happening in the United States. Uh, You mentioned that the UK and France are also going through this crazy time with used cars. And they're also getting into this practice of identifying which cars can make a profit and selling them too. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, it's the whole issue is the supply chain shortages right now, and that's a global issue. So it's affecting everything. And the other contributing factor is that it's becoming more expensive to own a car just because gas prices are rising everywhere. So people are really having to consider their transportation now and the cost of that relative to other methods of transportation. You mentioned in the article, too, that it seems like secondhand car prices could be reaching a peak, if you can explain that a little bit. And you also have to uh, be wary because if you do sell your car, you're going to be on the hook for the taxes. So that's another thing to, to keep in mind. So in terms of reaching a peak, some people are pointing to signals that prices can only go up so much. That's definitely something that's very hard to predict. And, you know, we'll see that play out the rest of the year, especially considering the inflation picture and how that is both so closely watched and also, you know, having the Fed hiking rates. So lots of moving factors in this. And so we'll see how it plays out the rest of the year. But yeah, for people who are doing this, the tax consideration is something to think about because cars are considered capital assets. And so they're taxed as you would a, a stocks or mutual funds. So the biggest takeaway from experts is, you know, make sure that you're not selling your car before you've held it longer than a year or else you're facing short-term capital gains taxes versus long-term capital gains taxes. And those long-term capital gains taxes are, are more favorable to you. Claire Valentine, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, there's a hidden cost to taxpayers for accusations of repeated police misconduct. The Washington Post collected data on nearly 40,000 payments at 25 of the nation's largest police and sheriff's departments and found that about $3.2 billion has been paid out to people claiming police misconduct. Many of these officers had multiple accusations. In most cases, it's easier to just settle claims rather than long, drawn-out defenses. And in paying these settlements, the officer or the department don't have to admit wrongdoing. For more on all this, we'll speak to Stephen Rich, database editor for investigations at the Washington Post. So this investigation started, I mean, this kind of started in 2015 when we started our collection of uh, every fatal shooting by police officers in the U.S. We've been sort of working our way through various aspects of policing, and this was one of those things that I thought about about a year and change ago in relation to the defunding the police argument. These settlements are sort of this thing that exists outside of normal police funding channels. And so I was very interested in how how much money was spent, how it was spent, what these cases were. And so what we ended up doing was we filed these requests to try to figure it out. And so what we ended up seeing uh, repeatedly was these officers named over and over and over again, and we we became really fascinated by them. And so we set out to figure out how many there were and what these cases were, and we ended up, as you said, with the 7,600 officers. But what we found was that 1,200 of those officers had at least five cases, and more than 200 had over 10. 
That was one of the shocking parts. So it seems that some of these officers were repeat offenders in this sense of the thing, you know, multiple allegations and then those multiple payouts associated with it. Now, you did mention in the article that a lot of these officers were serving on uh, gang units, drug units, things like that. So they were more prone to be in these higher crime areas and whatnot. But still, uh, they, uh, like I said, the, the allegations against them and multiple allegations were just mounting. Yeah, and one of the things that I will say about this is that because the police departments themselves don't admit wrongdoing most of the time when they settle, these officers aren't getting punished for any any of this because they're in their uh, in their approach they have done nothing wrong. And so in these cases, we're finding these officers who have settled ten times and never admitted to doing anything wrong. And yeah. the question sort of naturally comes up as to why do you keep settling on behalf of this officer if you're not going to be admitting that anything is wrong? I, explain how that works a, a little bit because that uh, kind of plays into all of it. So when somebody settles, right, the a lot of times the settlements or the way things are tracked. They're not tracked very thoroughly, so they're not tracked according to the officer's name. It might be uh, more towards the complaint to the person making the complaint or some type of lawsuit number, things like that. It's not tracked to the actual officer, so that's one thing. As you mentioned, the other part was the police departments or the officers don't admit wrongdoing, so it doesn't end up on their record. So it kind of gets lost a little bit that you know some of these officers are accused of multiple multiple events of wrongdoing. Right. So when we were putting together this data, we realized that most of these departments didn't actually keep the names of the officers involved. So part of our our effort was to was to pull all of those names. I you know over the past year or so, I went through twenty about twenty three thousand cases by hand to find all of these officers involved. And you know that's not necessarily a thing that these police departments are doing. And you know w- for whatever reason, it just is what it is. And so these things have often flown under the radar. And there were a few police departments who we called them and we told them about these officers. And it was the first time that anybody had told them sort of the repetitive cost of one or more more of their individual officers. Now, uh, one of the other parts of this is, you know, defenders of of police and the settlements, I guess, at large, is that they say it's probably cheaper and easier to go through with the settlements than actually going through fighting it uh, and then obviously admitting the wrongdoing is the other part of it too but the settlements just seem to be easier yeah uh, so you know some of them refer to it as the cost of doing business and in some cases that's true we've seen in some of the places that that showed us how much it costs them to fight it can cost a lot of money to fight some of these cases and so they feel like it's an easier way out or it's the it's the quickest resolution with the lowest value we know that some of them settle because they're afraid of what a jury will come what conclusion they will come to, which can often be more money than a settlement would be. But, you know, for the most part, when they do decide to settle, it is a clause in almost all of the settlements that they do not have to admit wrongdoing. One of the other things, too, is uh, often taxpayers, which do foot the bill for a lot of this stuff, they really don't know what's going on. Obviously, the police departments, they don't want to publicize what's going on. But you did make mention in the article that, you know, a lot of these multi-million dollar settlements, the really big ones, things like when we saw in the case of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor's family, these are the big, big payouts. Uh, a lot of times these uh, other ones involving all these other officers aren't that big. Uh, I guess they might average out to about $17,500 for some of these payments. But uh, that's one of the other reasons why you don't hear a lot about these. Right. In some of these places, that's sort of very routine and 
the media is, uh, is not necessarily going to write about every single case. They may not know about every single settlement because the, the police department, the law department, the finance department, they're not proactively advertising when they settle all of these things. And so we found that some of these settlements and some of the accusations of these settlements would, they'd be the kinds of things that would trigger news stories, but because they only, they end up settling and no one says anything, they sort of go way under the radar. The big three offenders, at least as far as uh, cities go, would be New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Obviously, the size of their police departments are just huge compared to a lot of other ones. But where are we seeing some of the big offenders when it comes to this? So we're seeing many of the people who have these repetitive settlements in many of those large cities. But one of the ones that I want to highlight is Philadelphia. Years ago, there was a narcotics unit, I believe, that was accused of things like false arrest and falsifying evidence. So the officers ended up going to trial, a criminal trial, and being acquitted. But the lawsuits just started piling up after that. So the there's one officer in Philadelphia who's been involved in 143 lawsuits that have resulted in payments over the years. And based on our conversations with the Philadelphia Police Department, there are at least 50 cases still pending. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. So then uh, what do police departments say about what's going on? I know you actually reached out to a number of the officers that are involved and, and uh, you found out their names throughout this whole thing. You heard from a few of them, not many. Most of them were not uh, did not want to make any comments, but you heard from a few of them. What What did they have to say about this? So the range of responses that we got from the police were kind of fascinating. You know, they pointed out that some of these cities, they didn't like the fact that they were settling on behalf of them repeatedly. Some of them pointed out that they don't really know that much about these because the, they're sort of kept in the dark. But at least one officer said that, that he believed that the public had the right to know about how their money was being spent in relation to these settlements and, he was, and, and in relation to the settlements for him which was a, a response that we didn't necessarily anticipate, but was like a really interesting insight. Let's get an example in here just to illustrate what's going on. Uh, one of the uh, people that you profiled in here was Tony Murray. So he's from Detroit. Officers went to his door. They banged in his door. They were searching his home. I believe they ended up killing his dog that was uh, barking in there. And the officer involved in that had, uh, you know, obviously they had to do a payout in this case, but he was also involved in a number of other things. So tell, uh, help us walk through some of that story. Yeah. So he is an officer who has been involved, who during our time frame of 2010 to 2020 had 10 settlements on his behalf for about $666,000. And those weren't the first or the last settlements that he's had. He's had them before. He's had them after that time frame. And they're all sort of in the same vein where it's like potentially illegal search and seizure or false arrest things like that. But what we know about him, and especially in Detroit, is that for whatever reason, members of the Detroit Police Department shoot a lot of dogs. By the accounting of another news outlet from a few years ago, Officer Moore had shot at least 12 dogs that he had reported to the department. And so for whatever reason, this was just sort of a rep the, the repetitive nature of his settlement sort of mirror the repetitive nature of his work. Stephen Rich, Database Editor for Investigations at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.